Guys, before I jump in, I actually just want to honor Leo really quickly, and I know this is going to make him uncomfortable, and he might blush, and it's going to be really cute, but I would love for you guys to actually stand and encourage my brother Leo by just thanking him for leading worship. Um, come on, Leo, you got to see it. You got to see that. Is he blushing? I don't know. I, is that blushing? Do I see? Are you blushing? <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to thank Leo. You guys can take a seat. Thank you so much. Because when I don't feel like worshiping at Salt Company, I just stand there and look mad. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. But when he doesn't feel like it, he still has to lead us in worship. So he's got a really hard job. And every single Thursday, I've been so encouraged by his faith to sing when he doesn't feel like it, to, wait, to worship when he doesn't feel like it. And that helps me in my walk with Jesus. So I just want to say thank you, Leo. Thanks, brother. Leo's great. Awesome. Guys, it is good to be back. Uh, my name is Tony. I'm on staff with this college ministry called The Salt Company. We are so excited to continue our series called Through the Eyes, which Rachel let me know. I like never actually told you guys what it is, so it's just a theory, okay? But the idea is that we're looking at stories in the book of Mark of people who encounter Jesus. And for the first two weeks, we looked at stories of people who had healing encounters with Jesus. But tonight, we're actually going to be looking at a story in Mark chapter 15, through the eyes of the people who killed Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Let me pray as we enter into our time together. Yeah, Father, I... Um, yeah, Lord, studying this text this week, I've just been like, man, I, I grow bored of the cross really, really quickly. And that sucks. And I hate that about myself. And I hate the ways that I that I don't honor the death of Christ on a cross because I've heard it once or twice, because it's become cavalier to me that the blood of Christ has become boring. And um, Jesus, I pray that you would change that in my own heart, that I wouldn't be someone who gets bored with the blood of Jesus Christ laid out on a cross. But every time I look at the cross, Father, would you help me to remind myself of how lucky I am that you have been so good to me. Father, pray for our ministry, that if Salt Company is known for one thing and one thing only, that it would be Jesus Christ crucified, that that would be the anthem of our ministry. Pray for souls in this room tonight, souls that are walking in tired and weary and frustrated and hurt and struggling with so many different things. Pray that they would be comforted in a supernatural way. Pray that your spirit would be heavy and that your grace would be light. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, guys, so I am not from here, okay? So I was not born in the United States. I was born outside of the United States. That would be logical. And uh, there's a couple of different things I love about America. Like, I, I do. I really do. I know that's a, that's a weird statement because, like, nationalism. But anyways, I'm not from here, so I can say that. But there are also things I'm confused by. Here's what I love about America. Here's how I start. I love the quantity and quality of McDonald's in America. Come on. How good is McDank's? The number seven meal every single time, Diet Coke, so good. Here's the thing, guys. Where I live, I like to figure this out. Within an eight-minute driving distance, there are three different McDonald's. Like, I can choose. That's quantity. Have you been inside a McDonald's recently? Guys, the interior design is beautiful. You're like, wow, I feel rich. Like, that's how I felt last time I went to a McDonald's. It was awesome. Okay, that's what I love about America. Here's something I'm confused by. Here's my asterisk. Uh, this is not a political statement. If you're going to try to pin me down politically, you're not going to be able to. So anyways, moving on. I'm confused by the government. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's what I mean by that. 
One is, how the heck does it work? Like, does anyone here actually know that? Like the House, the Senate, the court, the press, like how does that all work, okay? Second thing I was thinking about today, this week is, what does the vice president do? Have you ever thought about that? What do they do? I haven't seen Camila in like a year. Like, where have you been? Like, I have no idea. Sounds like an amazing job. The president, that sounds like a horrible job. Like, why would you sign up for that? Unless you're Brandon Smith. Brando, are you here? Brando, where's Brando? Brando's up there, yes, okay. He, he actually might become the president one day, and he was like, I can get you 10 White House passes. So I'm like holding into that, but he's gonna be a great president. I'd vote for you any day. But it's confusing, okay? You look at the US government, you're like, what's happening? Where do they spend all their money? Wow, okay, confusing, right? And I think this would be proved if you went to a random person on your campus or a random person in the streets of St. Paul, and you asked them this question. Tell me about what the government does, okay? you'd get like 700 different answers. People would be like, I have no idea. Okay, that, that clearly wasn't a great intro, so I'm just gonna move on, okay? But here's what I'm saying. Here's why I actually start that way. It's because here's the question that I would like to ask you guys, is what would people say if you went onto your campus and into the streets of St. Paul and you asked them, what does Christianity do? What is the essence of the Christian faith? What do Christians believe in and my guess is that they would give you a number of different answers. Christianity is about sin avoidance. I hear about these things called sins. I don't like them. Try not to do them. Christianity is about behavior modification. The goal is to make bad people less bad or to become good. Christianity is about some type of political leaning or some type of ideology. Christianity is about social reform. What would people say to you if you asked them what is the essence of Christianity. Ben, are we good? I feel like I'm like making noises. Yes? No? All right, well, we'll just move on from that. What would they say? And that's the conversation we're going to be having tonight as we look at Mark chapter 15. What is the essence of Christianity? What are we doing here? What is the point of Salt Company? What is the point of following Jesus? Look with me to Mark chapter 15 as you turn there. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read out eight verses. I'm going to read out eight verses. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, the crucifixion of Jesus, and be asking ourselves the question, what is the essence of Christianity? The two different parts that we'll be looking at is the humility of suffering and the power of sacrifice. And so if you're a note taker, humility of suffering, the power of sacrifice. Let's look with me to humility of suffering, verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, summon of Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. All right, it's all company. Normally when I preach, I'm pretty jokey, you know? Funny jokes. Apparently not tonight. What is, what's up? You guys good? What is this? Is this like... 2 p.m. on a Thursday, are you guys hitting the afternoon slump? Okay, be better. Anyways, but tonight, the story we're going to be looking at is maybe the most tragic day in human history. 
And so for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to give you a vivid description of the crucifix of Christ. And here's my one ask for you as just a favor, as someone who loves this story, as someone who's a follower of Jesus, would you eliminate distractions in your mind as you listen to the suffering of our Savior? Would you take a moment to actually quiet your soul and say, I want to hear about the ways that my Savior suffered? So this is where we pick up the story for Jesus. Up until this point, he had already been scourged, which basically means that he was wrapped around a pole, tied, hands tied together, and there was a Roman guard with a nine-tailed whip that had metal bones and glass at the end, and they would strike it upon Jesus' back. And as a whip hit his back, it would actually dig into his flesh, and when they ripped out the whip, blood would splatter everywhere. This was a common Roman practice to kill, not to kill, to hurt and damage people who had done hideous sins. Now, it wasn't just once that he would be struck, but he would be struck 39 times because they believed that 40 times would kill a man, but 39 would greatly wound him. So at this point in the narrative, Jesus is not doing ministries and healing other people. He's not giving sermons anymore. He's not even doing any ministry anymore. At this point, he's not the one being healed. He's the one being hurt. And so in this moment, his back is completely exposed. He would likely have felt fire running up his spine as bits and pieces of his back were torn off of his body. And then, here's what we learn, that he received a crown. And here's why he received a crown, is because he was known as king of the Jews. But this crown wasn't a true crown, it was a crown of irony. See, this was a mimicking and a mockery of the ways that they would say, all hail King Caesar. But instead, they would look at Jesus and said, all hail King Jesus. But this time, not a crown of rubies, but a crown of thorns that would be pressed into his head, and those thorns would become like rubies in color. So here we find Jesus with his back exposed, his entire body destroyed, thorns in his head, blood running down his eyes, unable to see, still wrapped around a pole. And then it says that the soldiers would beat him and spit upon him. But this is just the beginning of the torture of our king. Verse 24 may be one of the heaviest verses in the Bible and with four words, we get a mental picture of what happened to King Jesus. It says, and they crucified him. Now, crucifixion is a little bit of an old idea, right? We don't crucify people anymore. But at that time, those four words would have spoken volumes to the people that were reading this text. They would have heard something in those four words, a mental image that would have shocked them so much that it would have disgusted them. This is a quote from F.W. Farrar, which is an amazing name. And here's what he says about the death of, by crucifixion. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of their horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuous of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point that would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The de design of the crucifixion was to take someone to the very brink of death, right before they would pass out by all of the pain, but to keep them in that moment for the last hours of their life. So company, if you read this text well, you understand this is a death that no one would ever desire a death that would strip the victim of their dignity and humanity. And yet the most shocking part of this story is not the type of torture, but the person being tortured. 
This is not a story of a murderer or a rapist or a kidnapper or a Wall Street mongol getting, quote unquote, what they deserve. This is a story of the perfect son of God who never sinned, who came to give his creation life and love and received hate and death. This is a shocking story of the worst day in human history. Okay. Here's how this kind of ties into that first point that I gave you. To understand the essence of the Christian faith, you must understand that Jesus was a suffering savior. That the God we worship is radically humble. So coming, here's what I want you to understand. If you come around for the next year, here's what you're going to hear over and over and over again. Whatever perceptions you have of God coming into this room, leave them at the door. Let the information you receive from who God is be coming from the Bible. Because here's what I want to show you in this text. Jesus and the God, the Son of Man, is not some ethereal, far away God, but he is near to you. And here's why we know that. It's because he did not stand on the sidelines watching you suffer, but he experienced far deeper suffering than you ever will. So Jesus Christ has come near. As I was reading this text, I was just thinking to myself, like, I know we can't put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, but just imagine with me. Your back is on fire. Every bit of you is clamping down on your teeth to not scream out. Your head is bleeding. You have the most insane headache. And then you look out at 600 Roman soldiers that you created spitting on you. You design their souls. You design their hearts. You design the blood pulsing through their veins, and they're using the hands that you created to slap you across the face. You are the creator God of the universe, and yet you submitted yourself to the beating and torture of your own creation. Salt Company, how humble of a God is that? How ridiculous is it that God, the creator of the universe, would subject himself to be beaten and spit on to experience the worst type of injustice, the worst type of suffering, the worst ridiculous type of dehumanizing event, not just by anyone, but by the people he created, by the people he designed and designed together in their mother's wombs. Imagine with me the humility of Christ. Okay, so I've spent the last couple years of my life studying different world religions and ideologies, and that's because I married a woman. His na her name is his name. Her name, wow, that, that sucks. Okay. <laughs> Whew, wow, heavy room. Anyways, her name is Josie, and she's amazing. She loves Jesus, but she's always struggled with intellectual doubts. Okay, I don't know if there's anyone like this here, but you're a wonder, like, you're telling me, I, I believe in a carpenter from 2,000 years ago that died and resurrected, and that's what I'm going to live my life on? A little bit odd, so I get it, right? So... My wife has always struggled with intellectual doubts. So I spent the last couple years of my life studying different world religions and ideologies and, and schools of thought. But one thing always stuck out to me about the difference between the way that Jesus approaches the world and every other world religion. And that's on this conversation of suffering. So I've, as I studied, here's what I've learned about Hinduism. Hinduism, if you don't know, is primarily Eastern. Hinduism is a religion that if you're suffering, the reason why you're suffering in this life is because you sinned in your past life. Now, let me explain how that works out to you. This makes me cry every time, but I have a friend who's a missionary in Bangkok, Thailand, working in the red light district trying to free women from sex slavery. But in Thailand, Hinduism is prevalent. And what they've learned is that the reason why they're in the sex trade in this life is because they sinned in their past life. 
And the only way to escape suffering in the next life was to stay in it in this life. Does that make sense? They were told that there was no freedom on this side of life, and they had to wait for the next one. That's Hinduism's version of dealing with your suffering. So, company, Jesus does not say, wait for the next life when you're suffering. He says, I am with you in your suffering. Jesus Christ was a humble king who would not stay on the sidelines and watch you suffer, but he would come with you and show you that he suffered. So come here's the really practical application of this, that whenever you're suffering, here's what I want you to understand, that Jesus is with you in your suffering, and he knows your suffering, not sympathetically, not hypothetically. He doesn't just know your suffering from a theory level. He knows your suffering from a practical level. Here's what I want you to understand. The moment that your parents sat you down and told you they were going to get divorced, Jesus understands that suffering. The moments when you're sitting in your dorm room or your apartment alone and you feel so left alone and you feel like no one in your life cares, Jesus understands that suffering. When you feel like life is caving in on you and you're not sure if you're going to be here another month, Jesus understands that suffering. Here's what I want you to see, that Jesus Christ is a humble king who would come into suffering and would walk with you through it. But not only was he with us in our suffering, he had the power to defeat it. Look with me to verse 33. Guys, I was told that um, if I put my mic down, it doesn't make a noise. Let's try it. It works. Okay, it works. Well, we, eventually we're going to have to kill that one, but I just get, my throat hurts so bad. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Elo, Eloi, lama shibaktani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw that he would breathe his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. Okay, in verse 34, here's what we learned, that Jesus would cry out, Elo, Elo, lama shibaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, Alchemy, what I want you to understand about the crucifixion story is that the greatest suffering that Jesus Christ endured was not the physical beating. It was not the whips on his back. It wasn't the crown on his head or the nails in his hands. The greatest suffering that Jesus Christ would endure would be to be separated from his heavenly father who he had been in perfect unity in the Trinity since the beginning of time. And here's what the father did. He turned his face away from the one he loved the most so that he could turn his face towards us. This is the gospel. And as Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, here's a little bit of a theology lesson. There was at that time a temple, like a big temple, like think really cool, okay? And in that temple was a curtain. Now, it wasn't like a, like a tiny curtain. It was like a heavy, huge curtain that was to symbolize the separation between God and his people. And it was only one day, one year, one day out of the year where one man, the great high priest, could enter into the presence of God after he had done a bunch of religious stuff to atone himself, and he could enter into the presence of God and not be killed. But what this story is teaching us is that in the moment that Jesus died, 
the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God from heaven, from top to bottom, tore that temple to show us that it was through Jesus' death that we could be brought into the presence of God. This is the good news of the gospel. In the clearest terms possible, Jesus' death gives us life because we can find life only in God, only in the presence of God. And so in this moment, the curtain is torn down and Jesus is killed. See, so come here's what I want you to see. That on the cross, the sacrifice of Christ, the wrath of God was paid in full. From Genesis 3 to Mark 15 to vertical church in 2022, Mankind has been sinning its way out of the presence of God. And God, in one moment, would pour the wrath of himself onto Jesus so that he could strike Jesus down so that we could be lifted up. The beauty of the gospel is this, that Jesus went so that we didn't have to, that Jesus died so that we didn't have to. Okay, here's what I want you to understand from this part of the text. The essence of the Christian faith is the power of sacrifice. Okay, look with me at verse 39. It's actually really cool. I don't know. Can we put it back up? I don't know, Ben, if that's possible. The answer is no. Okay, so we can't put it back up. But verse 39 says this, that a Roman centurion was there who was just doing his job. He was just chilling, watching Jesus die, his probably 100th crucifix victim ever. And yet this man died in a way that no one else did. This man died pleading out to the heavenly father and his conclusion in the entirety of the cross the humility of god himself being brought onto a cross to suffer the power of god himself being lifted up out of the depth as he saw that immediately he believed that truly this is the son of god so Saul company what's the application for us for us now two thousand years later here's my invitation for you what if more and more of your gaze throughout the rest of your life became about the cross of Christ. As I was thinking about this, I was like, man, I was talking to my wife, I was like, okay, let me just look at my thought patterns. If I have 100% thoughts, right, 0.3% is about Jesus Christ crucified. Maybe 0.4 on like a really good day, but if I really think about it, 99.7% of my life is thinking about me. The point of my life is myself what I want to do, what my vision is, what my hopes are. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, man, can you imagine how awesome life would be if 10% of your thoughts were about Jesus? You know what I mean? It's like six minutes out of an hour. You're just like thinking, oh, Jesus Christ crucified, amazing. I think it would change your life. And here's the vision that I want to give you guys. The more that you think about the cross, the bigger your view is of the cross, everything else in your life becomes right-sized. Your insecurities become right-sized because you're like, oh, dude, Jesus died for my sins. I ain't got to worry about being short, although I am still worried about it. John is like 6'10". I'm like, oh, so discouraging. Right? Like your insecurities become right-sized. You don't have to earn someone else's approval when you have the approval of Jesus. Does that make sense? Your idolatry becomes right-sized. You don't have to find your worth in your academics, your sports, in your party scene, in the girls that you date, in the people that you Snapchat, and the people who follow you, because you know that you have the approval of Jesus Christ. Everything in your life becomes right-sized. And here's what happens. The more that you look at the cross of Christ, the more you want to love God and love people. So this is a super simple application, okay? Look at the cross more, and you will care about yourself less. Now, I know that's not necessarily like a woke 2022 saying, but here's what I'm saying. It's not that you care of yourself 
as less. It's that you think of your life less often. And if that was the invitation that God brought you into, I believe that all of us would care way less about what people think of us, who we're going to become, the things that will define our name one day, and we would care far more about the glory of God and the good of his people. Amen? Okay. That's the vision, so we should probably try to do it. Okay. All right. All right, so go back with me to my opening question. What is the essence of Christianity? Here's where I'm going to try to define the essence of Christianity, okay? This is so awesome. The essence of the Christian faith is the humility of God and the power of God wrapped up into this radical moment on the cross, okay? It's the humility of God and the power of God wrapped up into this radical moment on the cross. And here's my good news for you. The essence of Christianity is not about us. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about what you do or how well you do it, it's not about how much religious stuff you do or how morally behavioral you are, it is not about us. And that is the best news ever because Jesus is so much better at doing God things than we are. Okay, so the invitation for all of us is just like, take a chill pill, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like, man, the culture we wanna have here at Salt Company is that we take Jesus super seriously and we like don't take ourselves very seriously. You know what I'm saying? It's like, can you imagine how awesome life would be if all you cared about was how beautiful Jesus was? It would reorder all of your disordered loves. And so the invitation for all of us is to understand the essence of the Christian faith, that it is Christ crucified and Christ crucified alone. Okay, as I call the worship band back up, there are details in the story that I skipped in order to show you in this moment, so it's a little bit of a hack. But there are these details in the story that are called messianic prophecies, that Jesus wasn't a man who showed up on the scene 2,000 years ago without any type of prophetic anticipation, but God had been writing redemptive history since Genesis 3 of a Savior who would come to make all things right. And in fact, in Mark's account alone, Psalm 22 is quoted multiple different times. Now, here's what I want to invite you guys into, the beauty of the Bible, okay? If you read the Bible, you're like, wow, amazing. Here's the invitation I have for you. Psalm 22 directly prophesies about King Jesus, and it was written 1,000 years, 1,000 years, there's so many years, 1,000 years before Jesus was born and died. So in it, it prophesies about a man whose clothes would be cast out for lots. In it, it prophesies a man who was coming, whose hands would be pierced. In it, it prophesies about a man who was coming, who would scream out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It is one of the one-to-one -one direct prophecies in the Bible. But the good news I have for you guys, this is going to be nerdy and exciting, is Psalm 22 isn't the only Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. So in a moment, I'm going to fire through eight of about 324 to 456, depending on your sources, prophecies fulfilled by Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? If you want notes, email me at tony.lee at saltcitychurch.com. I think we're putting it. Yeah, you can do that. You can actually do it. I'll send you notes. I know, it's very exciting. Okay, let's begin. Here are the eight different prophecies I want to share with you about Jesus, all scattered throughout the Old Testament, that shows that Jesus was going to be the one to come to make all things right, that showed that Jesus was going to die on a cross so that we could live. Here are some of the prophecies I want to show you. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, prophesied in Micah 5, fulfilled in Matthew 2, John 7, and Luke 2. The Messiah is to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9 to Luke 35 to 38 and Matthew 21. And the Messiah is to be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41 and 55 to Matthew 10, 26, and John 13. Get this next one. This is so specific. Not 29, not 31, not 43, okay? The Messiah is to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. So awesome. Zechariah 11 to Matthew 26 to 27. The Messiah was born of a virgin. Okay, 
Who knows anyone born of a virgin? Not me, just Jesus, okay? How cool is that? Isaiah 7 to Matthew 1 and Luke 1. The Messiah was to be given vinegar to quench his thirst on the cross. Psalm 69 to Matthew 27. The Messiah was to be executed without having a bone broken. Think about that. Killed without a bone broken. That actually happened. They tried to break his bones after he had died in John, and then they like put a spear into it, and the water came out, so they didn't break his bones. It's actually amazing. That was fulfilled. Where was this? John 33. Okay. Last one. The Messiah is to be executed by crucifixion as a thief. Psalm 22, Zechariah 12, Isaiah 53 to Luke 23, John 20, Matthew 27. Okay, why do I tell you this? Here's something I really want us to understand at Salt Company, okay? Deep down. That the Christian faith is the most intellectually verified worldview in the world. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And this is an example of that. In fact, I actually have some data from a man named Peter Stoner, unfortunate name. Can you imagine? That being your last name, it's like you wouldn't have kids. Anyways, chairman, nope, I didn't say that. Uh, here's who he was. It's like playing behind me. Okay. The, he was the chairman of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College. And here's what he did. I know, bad joke. He applied the modern science of probability to eight, eight of the hundreds of prophecies, which led him to conclude that the chance of the prophesied Messiah fulfilling all eight in one lifetime is, get this, one zero ten carat square thing to the 17 okay so one zero and then 17 more zeros that's crazy here's what that means in words form it means that the likelihood that jesus would fulfill just eight prophecies in his lifetime was one out of 100 quadrillion yes amazing more facts this is a lot of math i feel like i'm redeeming my short calc experience here's what i want you to know the secular estimate for how many human beings have lived on the earth over the entire history of the earth's population is roughly 105 billion people, which is a lot. But if you take 100 quadrillion and divide it by 105 billion, you get 952,381. Yes, math on the screen. Guys, this is crazy. The idea that Jesus would be the prophesied Messiah and fulfill just eight prophecies would take us 950,000 earth times not just lifetimes, but all the people coming through the earth for us to get someone like Jesus. Isn't the Bible amazing? Get this, only eight out of the 352 slash 456. Come on, that's awesome. Like, can you imagine how crazy it is that God was sovereignly writing redemptive history for thousands of years, even before Jesus was born? Obviously he was existed because the Trinity. That's crazy. Here's what I'm trying to show you this year. My goal is that if you keep coming around, my hope is that you would actually leave Salt Company with an intellectual understanding of your faith. Yes, I want your heart to be transformed, obviously. Yes, I want your mind to be renewed by the Word of God, yes. But I would love if you would leave this place with an intellectual understanding that the likelihood of Jesus being the prophesied Messiah of just eight of the prophecies is one out of 100 quadrillion. That is crazy, and it's beautiful. But ultimately, the point of the sermon is not about the short calc that I just redeemed, shout-outs. It is about being like the centurion, gazing your eyes up to King Jesus as he's bleeding out on the cross, as the cross is no longer wooden or brown, but it is red with a hue. Seeing his hands nailed to that tree, seeing his crown on his head, King Jesus bleeding out and looking at him and saying, that is the most beautiful person I've ever met. And if you do that every moment, not every moment, it's unlikely, every day, for the next seven days of this next week and 30 days of this next month and 365 days of this next year and every day that you live on earth, I really do believe 
that the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the vision of God on a cross would transform your life. So let us be people that all hail King Jesus. Now, we don't mean it ironically anymore, but we believe that the prophesied Messiah came and saved us. Let me pray as we enter back into worship. Father, we don't have to believe in Jesus, but we do have to believe in pretty ridiculous probabilities. That the idea of you being the prophesied Messiah that would come as one in 100 quadrillion just gives me faith. I'm like, dang, Jesus. You are the son of God who came to die on a cross for me. You are the son of God who came to redeem my life. And as I look at the cross and I see a bloodied back Jesus with holes in his hands and a crown on his head that bleeds into his eyes, what I see is love. Love that, that defines in such a different way than earthly love, but love that is so radical and transformative that as I look at your cross, Jesus, I think much less of me and much more of you. So Saul Company, here's what I pray that we would be a people that are cross-type people, that we would be a people that see the bloody Jesus on a cross and look at him and say, that is the most beautiful man I've ever seen, and our lives would be about the cross. Father, pray that you transform our hearts, that you'd mind us of grace, and you would make us to be more like you. In your mighty name that we pray, amen, amen.